Uh, as I said, we are in part five of our series, Where We Fit in the Story of God. We've been journeying verse by verse through the book of 1 Peter. We'll finish this series next week, reading through 1 Peter chapter 5, which is the shortest chapter in this book, this letter. Uh, but we've been discovering that, that Peter looks back to the Old Testament frequently, makes a lot of references to the Old Testament, as he's weaving together this great story of who God is and, and where we as the church fit in it. The reality is that as a believer, you fit in the story of God. In other words, he's not just telling his story himself. He's invited you to help proclaim who he is, to help tell the world his goodness, his love, his mercy, his salvation. Each of us has been invited into that story. And so Peter writes his, his letter to the church, this early church, to say, hey, here's the opportunities we have. Now, if you remember contextually, uh, we know this book was written somewhere between A.D. 59 and A.D. 64. In A.D. 65, Peter is going to be martyred. He, he's going to die for telling people about Jesus. He kind of famously uh, is crucified upside down. Uh, and so Peter's life is going to end fairly soon after this letter is written. Uh, and it's not just Peter who is going to die. There's this great persecution that rises up in the Roman Empire against Christianity. Nero is the emperor, and Nero uh, decides to blame the Christians for the burning of Rome and unleashes the power of his empire against this, up to this point, kind of overlooked, ignored religious sect. Uh, of called Christianity, this burgeoning thing that is starting to grow, and they start to see it as a threat, so they begin to kill people in really awful, demonic, twisted, sadistic ways. Uh, and so Peter's writing to these Christians either right at the beginning of this persecution or right before it takes place, depending on when the letter was actually written, uh, and, and warning them, hey, suffering is coming. Persecution is coming. You need to be ready because uh, it may not be real pretty for a little while. This may be difficult. Now, for us, 2,000 years later, I don't think we're going to be going through this same type of persecution, right? Like, I think the world is turning away from God in many ways. Uh, I don't think in my lifetime people are going to be lit up as torches in the backyard of an evil emperor the way that Christians were and set on fire to burn to death. Um, I think some of the stuff we saw 2,000 years ago, we're probably not going to see that in our lifetimes. Um, but I do think there will be some persecution that we experience, some suffering. That's a little weird for us because, man, as Americans, as Christians, we've had it pretty good in America. Uh, America has been pretty good to Christianity uh, for a long time, so much so that we get kind of offended when America's not good to Christianity. We kind of have almost a Christian entitlement in America that we're supposed to be treated a certain way, and, and the reality is America may have promised that, but God didn't. Uh, in fact, God's word promised that as Christians, we're, we're going to suffer some persecution, we're going to have some people that don't like us. We're going to have some people that are against us, and that's okay. So we're going to journey through that together today in 1 Peter chapter 4. Before we get to that, I do want to mention communion. We'll be partaking of communion at the end of our service. Um, and what we discovered recently on this idea of communion is communion actually calls us to look in four different directions. And so I want to preface this message with this because I, I want your heart to begin preparing to partake of communion together. Um, communion obviously calls us to look back to Jesus' sacrifice and his suffering, right? Like that's the most clearly embedded part, like literally Jesus, as he's giving communion, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, so what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to remember Jesus was broken for us, right? And, and so that's the obvious surface level, most important aspect of communion. <clears throat> but it's actually not the only one that the Bible gives us in communion. Communion secondly calls us to look forward to Jesus's return, so we look back to what he did for us, but we also look forward to what he's going to do for us. Jesus says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, as often as you take this cup, you declare the Lord's death, Jesus' death, until he comes again. So we're declaring that he died, he's alive, and he's coming back. And so it calls us to look back to his suffering, but it also calls us to look forward to his return. Thirdly, communion calls me to look inside, to examine my own heart. It, it asks me, before I do this, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 11, not to partake of communion unworthily. 
uh, that each should examine our own heart. And so calls me to say, hey, is there anything in me that doesn't look like Jesus today? And if there is, this is not a moment of shame. It's not a moment of condemnation. This is not a moment of exclusion, that you are not worthy of taking communion. What it is is a moment of conviction that, hey, God's called me to something better. And so it's an opportunity, it's an invitation for me to get right. God, forgive me for allowing this thing to creep in, allowing this sin to be part of me, allowing this habit to, to rule in my heart when I know you've called me to something greater. And so communion calls me to, to look inside. And then lastly, number four, probably least commonly known, communion actually calls me to look around and to see the body of Christ that we get to be a part of. See, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul actually writes his famous address about communion as, as a rebuke, as a correction of the Corinthian church because they were getting some things wrong. And the things they were getting wrong was disunity. They had some people who were partaking of communion, and they were, they were getting drunk. They were drinking real wine, right? We're doing grape juice. You, can't get, you can have as many cups of this as you want. You ain't going to get drunk. You might get sick, but you ain't going to get drunk. Uh, but but they, were, they were getting wasted partaking in the blood of Jesus, which was obviously never the intention. Others were, were, were throwing down on, on like the extra. They were like, Olive Garden, give me some more bread. Keep it coming. Uh, and, and then other people, just because some people were being greedy, other people didn't have any. And so Paul says, look, you're missing the point. This thing is about unity. This is, it's communion. It's the community coming together in union as the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ now. And you're called to do this together. This is called to, to bring us together. When we partake of communion, we partake as, as city church, but not just as city church. We partake as believers who are part of a kingdom that's, that's a billion plus strong on planet earth right now that goes back for generations that, that we get to celebrate that, man, there's, there's people on the other side of the world who I'll never meet on this life, but they love the same Jesus I love. They speak a different language and they may worship to a different style and they may have different songs that they sing, but man, that we're part of this body together. And so communion calls me to look around. It calls me to look back to what Jesus did, to look forward to what Jesus is going to do, to look inside and make sure that it looks like Jesus in here, and then it calls me to look around to the body. So with that kind of preface, before we get into today's text, let's dive in to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start today in verse 7. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 19. Uh, and like I said, next week we'll be in chapter 5 entirely. So starting in 1 Peter chapter 4, it says this. It says, the end of all things is near. Start out with some doom and gloom, right? That sounds horrible. Uh, now, we hear that the opposite of what Peter was saying it. When Peter says the end of all things is near, this is an encouragement. Remember, he's telling this to people who are going through a massive persecution, to people who are suffering greatly. And so he's encouraging them. It doesn't sound like an encouragement to us, but he's encouraging them, hang on. The end is coming. You're not going to suffer like this forever. God isn't going to leave you to go through this for generation after generation after generation. There is an end to your suffering coming. The day is coming when Jesus will wipe away every tear and fully restore all things. The end is near. When I was in Bible college in Georgia, uh, there was an individual who would stand out on the street corner in town uh, on the hottest days of the summer. So, like, we would go back to school in August like we do here, which is, I'm pretty sure, not a godly thing to do. It's too hot to be in school right now. Uh, but we would go back to school in August, and it would be very hot uh, in the humidity in Georgia. And there would be this individual who, on those hot, hot days, he would get in a fireman uniform, like, head-to-toe covered. It had to be 150 degrees in that thing. I don't know. And he would hold up a sign that says, the end is near. Repent or you're going to hell. Uh, and I drove by that dude with that sign. I couldn't even tell you how many times. I don't know that anybody ever repented because of that sign. Maybe they did. The Holy Spirit can use anything. And I hope and pray that somebody did. I know that I was a Christian and I kind of rolled my eyes at the guy, if I'm just being real honest. Um, it didn't seem like the most effective message, right? doesn't mean that the reality of what was being said isn't true. just means it wasn't maybe the most effective way to say it. Uh, and so Peter says the end of all things is near. He says, therefore, since the end is coming, I want you to be alert 
and of sober mind. Remember, we talked earlier in this series about the, the importance of a sober mind. How God hasn't called us to, to drunkenness. God hasn't called us to give our mind over to some sort of a chemical, but he wants us to be sober mind. Well, Peter says here, part of the reason we're supposed to be a sober mind is so that we may pray. Now, I don't know about you, um, I've been on some street ministry opportunities and some mission trips where uh, we, we ministered to some people who were not of sober mind. Uh, and people who are not of sober mind, a lot of times are very willing to pray, right? So what does that stuff do? It lowers inhibitions. Uh, and so it lowers a lot of inhibitions. And this doesn't say that, hey, just if you're praying as a drunk person or somebody who's high, that God doesn't hear your prayer or isn't responding to your prayer. What it, this is saying is that as God's people, man, that when we come to God, man, we want to be fully alert and fully able to, to absorb what he says to us because prayer is a conversation. Prayer is us talking to him, but it's also us hearing him respond to us and him calling us to things and, and placing things in our heart. And so we need to be fully alert. We need to be fully sober and ready for what he's going to say. He says, because the time is short. The end is near. In other words, we don't have a ton of time left. So take advantage of the opportunities we have while we have them. That word uh, near in the Greek has an interesting meaning. Uh, the word in the Greek is engizo. Engizo. The word engizo literally means to draw near. So something is, is approaching. Something is coming. I'll give you a couple of other examples of verses where we see the Greek word engizo that hopefully will help it to make sense. In uh, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus uh, is, speaking in, or is speaking about Jesus. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven draws near, the kingdom of heaven engizo. So it's coming, right? The kingdom of heaven is approaching. It's getting closer. Uh, in James chapter 4, 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says famously, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What is it saying? It says, literally says, engizo to God and he will engizo to you. So, so a lot of times with the Greek and Hebrew words, there can be some confusion or some meaning or, hey, it's 2,000 years ago. Are we sure what this actually means? There's no confusion with engizo. So when Peter says, man, the end of all things is near, <coughs> excuse me, it's drawing near, it's coming, it's approaching, I think Peter really thought that Jesus was coming back like in his generation or the next generation. Uh, in fact, church history tells us pretty clearly the church thought very early on that Jesus was going to be back very soon. Here we are 2,000 years later, and Jesus still hasn't come back. Does that mean that Peter was wrong? That the kingdom of heaven was not drawing near? No. It doesn't mean that. It means that the Holy Spirit meant something different when it said Engizo than Peter meant when he said Engizo. So the Holy Spirit is saying there's this eternal perspective, right? Man, with the perspective of eternity, the return of Jesus is very close. Man, it's coming. I don't know if Jesus is coming back in our generation, y'all. Could he? Absolutely. Could he not? Absolutely. A lot of Christians have thought he was coming back in their generation and been very wrong. I'm not going to stand up here and say, repent because Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I don't know if that's true. Here's what I do know. He's coming back. I do know that our time here is limited. We have a short amount of time when we have the perspective of Scripture. When we look at the, the perspective of eternity, we realize, hey, there's a short amount of time here. we got to seize the day. we got to take advantage of the opportunities that God has given us. Amen? Amen. Moving forward, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. If I were to rank the strengths and weaknesses of City Church, uh, I think we have a loving church. You may feel differently. Uh, and from my perspective, uh, you guys are either fooling me or we have a loving church. So one or the other, um, I think we've got a pretty loving church. I think we have a church that cares about each other. I think we have a church that, that cares about God. I think we have a church that cares about the community. Now, we've got some weaknesses. We talked a couple weeks ago. One of our weaknesses, uh, uh, we've got a long way to go when it comes to holiness. We've got some room for improvement in that area, right? So I'm not here to just puff us up and say, hey, we've got the greatest church in the world. We got a church that loves Jesus and is pursuing what God is calling us to. So I think we got a loving church. However, Peter doesn't say, hey, I just want you to love each other. He says, I want you to love each other deeply. I think we got some room to go towards deeply loving each other. 
I think, I think there's some, some room for progress when it comes for us deeply loving each other, deeply sacrificing for one another. And look what he says. He says, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Does that mean that if we start walking in love that we can just do whatever we want? We don't have to worry about if something's sinful or not? That's not what that means. What it means is, in fact, I, I did some research on this because I thought it was a really interesting statement and a really important one. Um, read some commentaries. I want to share with you one commentary. A commentary is basically just a, a Bible scholar who went through a book of the Bible and wrote down their thoughts, their observations. Here's what these things mean. They studied the, the Greek or the Hebrew, whatever the original texts were, and give us some understanding on this text. So one commentary by a guy named Matthew Henry, uh, who I believe is British, uh, couple hundred years old. He's not a couple hundred years old. His commentary is a couple hundred years old. He's in heaven with Jesus. Uh, So he says this. He says, it is the property of true charity, uh, charity being the King James translation of that word, which we see as love here in the the NIV, the property of true charity to cover over a multitude of sins. It inclines people to forgive and forget offenses against themselves. So why does love cover a multitude of sins? Because if we're walking in love, we're going to be charitable to each other. Instead of looking to pay you back when you hurt me, instead of looking for revenge, instead of looking to hold it over your head and weaponize that mistake against you, I'm looking for an opportunity to, to extend mercy. I'm looking for an opportunity to walk in grace just like Jesus did for me. So when I'm loving each other deeply, it's covering a multitude of sins because it says, you know what, it's okay that you made that mistake. It's okay that you hurt me that way. I'm going to choose to love you anyway. I'm going to choose to push through this. I'm not going to give up on you or forget about you or write you off or come back at you. I'm actually going to choose to do what Jesus did, and I'm going to extend grace in this situation. So how does it cover a multitude of sins? It calls us to forgive and forget offenses against ourselves. It causes us to cover and conceal the sins of others rather than aggravate them and spread them about. So in other words, when a church is not loving each other deeply, what happens when somebody messes up? Start talking. Start gossiping. Sadly, there's a world out there where many of them, one of the things they think of most when they think about the church of Jesus Christ is they think about gossip. Because they were a part of a community of believers, or they knew someone who was a part of a community of believers who did blow it, who did make a mistake in some sort of way, and rather than grace being extended to them, everybody started talking. One thing we talk about here at City Church, and we haven't talked about this for a while, and we probably need to start saying it more often, is, is this is something we just don't do here. Man, we got a sign out on the door that says you're free to struggle here, and you are free to struggle here in literally just about any possible way. In other words, we don't expect you to be perfect, to have it figured out, to come be a part of this church family. We're all struggling with something together, and we're pursuing what God has for us. We're struggling towards that better place he's calling us to. But this is one area you can't struggle here. You can't struggle here with gossip. Because gossip destroys people. Gossip destroys churches. Gossip destroys the testimony of Jesus. We are going to love each other deeply. We're going to watch each other's back. We're not going to look for the opportunity to go tell somebody else what we heard about so-and-so. Can you believe that they just did this? And and we're not even going to gossip it up with Christianese and say, we really need to be praying for so-and-so. Wink, wink. Right? Like, we're going to watch each other's backs. And when we find out that a brother or sister fell, we're going to go talk to them about it and encourage them in it. And How can I help? How can I pray with you in this? But we're not going to go tell everybody else about it because that's not who Jesus is. Praise God. Jesus knows every mistake I've ever made, and he has not outed me. He's not running around saying, Aaron, I can't wait till you hear what Pastor Troy just did. Right? That's not who he is, and that's not who we're called to be. So we're going to watch each other's backs. Amen? Amen. Matthew Henry goes on. He says, talking about love covering a multitude of sins, he says, it teaches us to love those who are but weak and who have been guilty of many evil things before their conversion. Remember, this is first century Christianity. They got people in the church like Paul, who what happened with Paul before he became a Christian? He hunted Christians down. He threw them in prison and had some of them even killed. He participated in that. And now he's a part of the church of Jesus. 
And that's an amazing testimony, right? That's an incredible 180-degree story. Praise God for what Paul did or what God did in Paul. But there were people in those churches that Paul came to minister to, and it was their brothers or sisters that he put in jail. It was their friends who he helped murder. And it wasn't just Paul. There were other people like this who had persecuted the church who are now coming to Jesus. And Peter says, look, love covers a multitude of sins. Matthew Henry recognizes that when we're walking in love that covers sins, we're not going to hold against people stuff that happened, stuff that they did, even evil stuff that they did to us. Now, the reality of modern day church is we've got people who do evil stuff to each other after salvation, right? That's, that's, That's a whole different category. Right, like if there, there's abuse, if there's that kind of stuff that goes on that we we talked about earlier in the series. Like everybody's under accountability, and that's the, the submission. And so, man, if there's leadership, we see this in a lot of churches right now. Right, if leadership enters into abuse, man, a lot of times, well, we don't want to say anything because we don't want to hurt the church. Not saying anything hurts the church. They need to be held accountable because they're under authority too and then the authority of the government which says, hey, if there's physical abuse, there's sexual abuse, or there's that kind of stuff going on, there's accountability for those actions. Uh, and, and so this is not saying, hey, anything goes into the church. This is not saying that we don't hold people accountable for things that are wrong. We absolutely do. But it is saying that we're going to extend forgiveness and we're going to extend love, and that when we do, it covers over a multitude of sins, that it, that it brings help and it brings healing to God's people. Matthew Henry's quote, to, to close it out, he says, It prepares for mercy at the hand of God who hath promised to forgive these that forgive others. Jesus makes it very clear, if we want to be forgiven, we've got to be people who forgive. Man, it's, it's one of the prerequisites of being a follower of Jesus is we're going to choose to be forgivers. I'm a big believer that a, that a successful marriage, a long-term marriage, is just the union of two good forgivers. And people who continually extend grace to each other. doesn't mean we don't challenge each other to get better. doesn't mean we don't hold each other accountable. But in the midst of that accountability, man, we're forgiving. We're forgiving. We're forgiving. We're forgiving. That's a successful marriage. It's a marriage that's going to go somewhere and, and accomplish something. Why? Because that's the way God's designed for us to be in the kingdom of God is to be people who extend forgiveness. Amen? Verse 9, moving forward. He says, offer hospitality. It's Mississippi. It's the hospitality state, right? It's the south. We got this going on. He says, offer hospitality to one another. <laughs> Praise God. Check. We got that down. But then he says this, without grumbling. What does that mean? It means hospitality without, bless your heart. Right? Like we can be very passive aggressively hospitable in the South. Like we can show this very nice surface hospitality, but there's something inside where we're kind of communicating something different. He says, not in God's church. I mean, in the church of Jesus, we offer hospitality without grumbling about it, without complaining that we've got to do it. We do it. Why? Because we're walking with deep love towards one another. We're excited to get to offer hospitality to each other. We're excited to extend this, this opportunity to show somebody, hey, here's who Jesus is, and here's the love of Jesus, and share it with one another. Verse 10, each of you, everybody said, that's me. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to do what? To serve others. So my gift isn't to bless me. My gift isn't even primarily to glorify God, although that's a part of it, and we're going to see that in a moment. But, but the gifts that God gives to me is really for the benefit of somebody else. The gift that God placed in you is really for the benefit of someone else. This is the beauty of God's design and his sovereignty as he chose to place a gift inside all of us. In fact, I believe he places gifts in us in different stages and different seasons. I believe we each have natural gifts, things that we're naturally good at. I also believe we have spiritual gifts, things that when we come to Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, that new gifts that he births inside of us or increases inside of us. And I think each of those things were actually placed there for us to be a blessing to somebody else. So it says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So you are called to steward your gift. We usually talk about stewardship when it comes to like money, right? Maybe stewardship sometimes when it comes to time management, which I'm really bad at. Uh, here he's talking about stewardship when he talks about gifts. You've been given a gift and you're expected to do something with it. 
God wants you to use it. To do what? To serve somebody else. So my gift isn't for me. It's not even ultimately for God. My gift is for you. And when I say my gift, I don't say that as the pastor, as, as the person who's standing on a stage. I say that as a follower of Jesus, as somebody who's filled with the Spirit of God, as somebody who's received salvation. God's placed a gift in me that he's called to get out to bless somebody else, and he's done the same thing for you. He's put a gift in you that's designed to be a blessing to somebody else. So, so here's what happened. Here's the danger, guys. When we're not walking in our gifts, we're cheating our brothers and sisters out of something God's designed for them to have. It might sound kind of harsh, but I think it's absolutely true. If I'm not using my gift, somebody's not getting something they need. And if you're not using your gift, somebody's not getting something that they need. Now, there's seasons, right? Like, we went on a seven-week sabbatical, okay? Like, like, I'm not saying every single moment of every single day, if you're not using your gift, you're a failure. That's not Jesus, Okay, we serve a God of rest, we serve a God of Sabbath, we serve a God of grace, so please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if your gift is dormant, if your gift is just up there on a shelf, if your gift isn't in exercise and use in any sort of a way, in any function, somebody's missing out on something that they need. That God designed for you to provide that encouragement to them. That service to them, that generosity to them, that accountability to them, right? Like God designed for them to have it coming through you, and now they don't. So we got to steward our gifts. So how do we steward a gift? Well, the first question is, what's your gift? Right? That's where we got to begin. Some of us, like, it's very obvious what our gift is. Some of these people who stand up on this stage and they've got these incredible singing voices, man, I'm so in awe that anyone can sing because I've tried and it just doesn't happen. Right? I, I make that joyful noise that Austin was talking about earlier. Uh, I don't have that, that gift. That gift was not placed in me um, as much as I wish that it was. It wasn't. And so when people have, a, a, man, these voices of an angel, I'm just like, man, it's, it's amazing that somebody can do that. I'm so grateful that those gifts are placed in the house. I'm grateful for people who faithfully steward those gifts and use them to draw us into his presence through worship. Thank you, guys. Thank you, worship team, for using those gifts. And there's a lot of other gifts. There's somebody right now using their gift to change Noah's diaper. I got a two-year-old, and I changed some poopy diapers this week that were rough. So thank you, Kid City. That's maybe not as obvious of a gift, but you've chosen to use your gift to serve. Man, to be in there with some kids and to love on them and to love on their parents by extension, that's a blessing. Thank you for that. We got people in the media booth who, man, nobody notices them unless something goes wrong. And then everybody looks back there and now the, you know, the, all the introverts in the booth are like freaking out because everybody's looking at them. You can all look at them right now and just make them real uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> thank you, guys. You know that they get here at like 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings to make this happen. They stay through both services. They're here for almost five hours to make sure that we have a live stream, to make sure that there's words on a screen so we can sing along and enter into worship, to, to make sure that there's uh, audio that works, a microphone that's, that's not cracking, like to do all these little things that you don't think about unless they go wrong. Thank you, guys. Thank you for using your gifts. Thank you for serving the church. We're blessed because you chose to steward your gifts well. And we can go on and on and on through every area, through every department, far beyond what just happens inside the church building. I'm just using some examples. But God's placed a gift in us that's designed to get out and be a blessing to somebody else. He's going to illustrate that for us now. Verse 11, he says, if anyone speaks, and I don't think he's talking about just what I'm doing standing on a stage with a microphone. I think he's talking about when you tell somebody about Jesus. When you encourage somebody, when you're speaking as a representative of Jesus, he said, if anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. In other words, you open your mouth trusting the Holy Spirit's giving you words to say. And sometimes you might miss it, and you might say something that's not God, and that's when we go back and we apologize, and I've had to do that. I mean, I, I hate when I say something up here and then find out that, hey, that was, I missed it. I blew it on that, but if I do, I promise I'm going to come tell you because I don't want to misrepresent Jesus because I'm going to answer to him for everything that comes out of my mouth up here. And I'm going to do my best to make sure it's him. Sometimes it's not. But I'm supposed to get up here and, and walk in the boldness and the confidence that God's going to speak. 
right? And when you're sharing your faith, man, with that coworker, with that family member, open your mouth trusting. God's going to give me the words to say. God's going to speak through me. God's going to be glorified in this when you're encouraging that, that friend who's going through anxiety right now and through a very difficult time and they're suffering and you're just trying to speak life into their situation. Open your mouth trusting you're speaking the very words of God. He's speaking through you. The Holy Spirit is in you and he's speaking into that person's life. He doesn't just stop with those who speak. He says if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. We talk about this every once in a while here, but it's such a pervasive myth that I think, feel like we have to keep addressing it, right? There's this Christianese statement that God won't put on you more than you can handle. Um, and the Bible doesn't actually say that. And I think it's a lie. I, I think the reality is life the brokenness of this world, and sometimes even God in his wisdom has us go through things that are far beyond what we can handle. But he doesn't ever have you go through anything that's far beyond what he can handle. And so Peter says, when you serve, don't serve in your strength. God forbid you serve in your strength. He says, serve in the strength that God provides. Serve in the strength of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Don't use your gifts. Man, if I get up here in, in my strength, and I get up here and I speak my words, you guys are wasting your time. You would have been better staying in bed today. God forbid that that happens. But man, when the anointing comes on, that's the, the anointing is the Holy Spirit taking what I already have and making it better, increasing it. When the anointing comes on, when we serve, it's not just us serving, it's God's strength serving through us. Now stuff starts to happen. Now that serving makes an impact. Now it changes lives and, and changes eternity. There's something that happens. He says, if any of you serve, they should do so with the strength that God provides. Why? So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So first of all, I use my gift so it's a blessing to somebody else. Secondly, I use a gift, my gift because it brings glory to Jesus. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I love that Peter, in the midst of this little teaching segment on serving and speaking and being used by God, he just like gets, catches the Holy Spirit. He's caught up in the preaching moment. It's like, to him be the glory and the power and the praise forever and ever. Amen. Right? You can just see him like switching to preacher gear right here. And we know Peter could preach. So he gets in that moment. Verse 12, catches himself, gets back to what he's trying to say. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Not a lot of amens on that one, right? Oh, we don't like that. He says, don't be surprised that you're being persecuted. Don't be surprised that you're going to suffer. Remember, literally, many of these people are going to be burned to death for following Jesus. So when he says, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal, he's saying, I'm trying to warn you, it's going to be bad. It's going to hurt. There's going to be some suffering here. Don't be shocked when it comes. And, and he says, don't even think that something strange is happening to you. Verse 13, but he says, but rejoice. And as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. To our natural mind, it almost seems cruel to tell people who are suffering to rejoice in their suffering, doesn't it? Doesn't that just seem wrong on some level? Oh, you should rejoice in this. But remember, the kingdom of God is upside down. Jesus came and he flipped the script, and so we can't default to our human feelings and our human emotions. He says, even in the midst of your suffering, you can rejoice. And now also remember this, Peter isn't speaking from outside the suffering into the suffering. Peter is speaking from inside the suffering to his fellow sufferers. Peter's experiencing this persecution too. Peter's going to die for his faith too. And so he's not just speaking from outside of it, trying to tell people how to figure out how to get up to his level. He's saying, as we go through this, we're going to go through it together. We're going to rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. Why? So that we may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In other words, if we can learn to rejoice while things are falling apart, 
If we can learn to rejoice while we're experiencing persecution, if we can learn to rejoice while things aren't going the way that God's designed for them to go in our life, how much more can we rejoice when Jesus comes back and he restores all things? How much greater will our joy be then when we see Jesus face to face and he wipes away every tear and he takes away every sickness and every disease and there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more suffering. He says, man, if we can rejoice now, we're going to over rejoice when that day comes. Amen? 14, he says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, if I'm being real honest I haven't been insulted because of the name of Christ like a ton in my life. There there have been a few times I could point to in different situations or different workplaces or online conversations or or whatever uh, where where there's been a little bit of heat that's come on me. Nothing like what they suffered 2,000 years ago, right? I've seen just a very, very small taste of this. And, And if I'm being super honest, I've never been insulted because of the name of Christ and been like, yes! I'm blessed, right? That's that's never been my first response. Like, high five, praise God, we got him. We did it, right? That's never my immediate response. My immediate response is frustration, uh, is, you know, playing the victim, like feeling like I've been victimized. Like, it's, it's a human nature response. I've got some maturing to do in this area. I've got some opportunity to grow. Peter says, look, as we mature, as we become more and more like Jesus, We don't focus on the victimhood of our persecution. We actually focus on what it says about us. Check this out, verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. In other words, what's Peter saying? He's saying if you get persecution as a Christian, if you suffer because of your faith, that means you're doing something right. So celebrate. You've been identified with Jesus. The people who hate Jesus are supposed to hate us. If they hate Jesus but they don't hate us, that means we're not very much like Jesus. But he says when we start to catch those strays, when we start to catch that, that, that vitriol that's meant for Christ, and we start being so associated with him that it comes against us, that's a great sign that we're looking a little bit more like Jesus than we used to. And so celebrate it. Embrace it. Now, that doesn't mean we go looking for it. Uh, there, there, there are Christians who are like persecution magnets, and they're out there just trying to like pick fights and, and instigate stuff so that they can talk about how persecuted they are. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that in the course of loving people like Jesus does, in the course of speaking truth truth into the culture, there's going to be some people who don't like that. And as we do those things, as we walk in the love of Jesus, if we receive persecution like he did, rejoice in it. Because, man, that means you're reflecting Jesus to a broken world. Three verses to go, guys. Verse 17, for it's time... For judgment to begin with God's household. Not my favorite verse. Not one that's on my social media profile. Not one that I'm getting tattooed on my body. I'm scared of needles, so I don't have any tattoos. But, you know, uh, not, not one that I'm like, praise God, it is time for judgment to begin with God's house. But you know what this verse tells me? It tells me that even 2,000 years ago, there were already Christians who were starting to look at the culture around them and and point at the sin and point at the wickedness and point at how broken it was and to get really caught up in worrying about how messed up everything is out there. And Peter says, no, don't worry about what's going on out there. Start worrying about what's going on in here. If we will be the people of God we are created and called to be, If we'll reflect Jesus the way that we're empowered to because the Holy Spirit is in us, we're naturally going to make an impact on the sin that's going on out there. But if we get so worried about the sin in the culture and the sin of the world around us that we take our eyes off of dealing with our sin, then the enemy is going to win. He's going to distract us. So he said, ultimately, judgment is going to start in here. What's that mean? That means there's a higher standard for God's people. God loves us and he extends grace to us and he applies Jesus' righteousness to our account. So this is not hellfire and brimstone. This is not you are going to be judged and you're going to hell. What this is, 
is an invitation because 1 Corinthians says that if we judge ourselves, then he won't have to judge us. So we have the chance to look inside as we take communion say, is there stuff here that shouldn't be here? God, have I got caught up in gossip? Have I failed to deeply love my brothers and sisters? Have I held on to my gift and not used it to be a blessing to people around me? God, have I missed it? And if I have, God, thank you that you're a God of grace and you're a God of forgiveness and you're not rejecting me. You're not kicking me out of your family, but you are calling me to something better. So let's receive that call. Peter says it's time for judgment to begin in God's house. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, and if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, he quotes the Old Testament, what will it become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, if God's people can't get it right, what hope does the world have? The world doesn't have the opportunity to look to an example that's different. If we're not the the light of the world that we're called to be, if they look at us and they see the same stuff they see out there, what hope do they have? But if we'll get this right, if we'll let the Holy Spirit shine in us, if we'll walk truly in the love of Jesus and aspire to be available as we've talked about, right? Then the world's got hope because they see Jesus in us. Last verse, verse 19. So then... Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. What do I do if I'm suffering? What do I do if I'm persecuted, right? We've already talked about the persecution that we go through doesn't really look like what they went through, but that doesn't mean we don't experience any. What do you do when you're persecuted? What do you do when people start pushing back against you for representing Jesus, for loving Jesus, for for showing Jesus? Peter says when you're going through persecution... Keep going. Continue doing what you're doing. Continue submitting to the creator. Continue walking in his love. Keep doing what you're doing. In other words, when you start suffering, that's not the sign. Now's the time to take a step back. Now's the time to recalibrate because something's wrong because I'm suffering. When you start suffering, you start receiving persecution. That's a really good sign you're on the right track. Just keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep loving people the way you're loving them. Now, there's a difference between honest persecution and accountability, right, and responsibility for our actions. Like there are Christians out there who misrepresent Jesus really strongly, and then they think that they're being persecuted. That's not what we're talking about. That's why we got to examine our heart. That's why we got to let the Holy Spirit speak to us, because we, we can take righteous correction as persecution and think we're doing the right thing. But if we are doing the right thing, that brings us into persecution. Peter says, just keep on doing what you're doing, because remember, this is just for a little while. Keep that eternal perspective. This isn't going to last forever. The end of all things is near. He encourages them with that statement. We're going to partake of communion as we wrap up our service today. Remember the four directions that communion calls us to look. Communion number one calls me to look back at what Jesus did for me. It's such a deeply powerful aspect of communion. In fact, I would say most of the times I've taken communion in my life, this is the only one of these perspectives that I've taken it with. And I think if all you take communion with is the perspective of looking back at what Jesus did, I think it can be a very, very powerful, impactful thing. This is the most important of the perspectives. Remember what Jesus did for us. We're going to sing a song in just a minute called Nothing But the Blood. We're going to declare that nothing can make us right with God except for the blood of Jesus except the sacrifice that he made for us. Communion calls us to look back and remember what he did. Verse 12 in 1 Peter chapter 4 says this. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But verse 13, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. So 1 Peter 4 reminds us that Jesus suffered. Communion reminds us that Jesus suffered. He sacrificed. And because he suffered, man, whatever suffering I may be experiencing today, it pales in comparison to the joy that he has for me tomorrow. Which brings me to number two. It calls me to look back and then it calls me to look forward. It calls me to look forward to the return of Jesus. Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, does that happen in my lifetime? I don't know. It's going to happen. If it doesn't happen in my lifetime, then I get to go be with him before he comes back here, and then he's going to bring me with him. But he's coming back. 
because he's alive and he's not done. He's not finished with his work in the world. Communion reminds me, it declares the Lord's death until he comes again. He's coming again. Remember 1 Peter 4, 7 said the end of all things is near. This present suffering isn't going to last forever. This thing you're going through right now, this frustration you're experiencing, doesn't mean it's not real. doesn't mean we're trying to minimize it or say it doesn't matter. But what we are saying is keep going. Don't give up. God's going to see you through it. He's going to get you through on the other side. Verse number three, excuse me. Communion calls me to look inside, to examine my heart. First Peter 4, 17, for it's time for judgment to begin in God's house. It's time for us to look at ourselves and see, are we really living up to the invitation that God made for us to be representatives of Jesus? Are we really living up to the call that he has in our lives? And if we're not, why not? Why not today? Why not choose his best today? Why not take that step and say, you know what, Jesus? I'm giving you everything. You can have it all. You can have it all. We sang it. Are we ready to do it? Communion calls us to look inside and check our heart. I'd encourage you to begin examining your heart if you haven't already. Is there anything in you that doesn't look like Jesus? In fact, I would say this as well. This thing we're about to partake in in just a moment, this is the one thing that, that we do as a church family that we ask you not to do if you're not a Christian. Jesus explicitly says, hey, this is for my followers. So if you haven't chosen Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we're, we're not judging you, we're not condemning you. You're welcome to, to do everything else with us and please stay with us throughout this service. But we would ask, don't partake of these elements. Now, the good news is if you're not a follower of Jesus but you wanna be, it's a really simple process. You choose him as Lord. You say, I'm, I'm ready to follow you. Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's how you become a Christian. So you can do that today before we even partake in this. Nobody even has to know you. You would have missed out. You can tell us later on and we'll celebrate with you. We'll be so excited. Right where you're at, just talk to God. Tell him you're sorry for your sins. Tell him you want Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Tell him you're thankful that Jesus died for you. And you can become part of this family, the family of God, and partake in communion with us. Last thing communion calls me to do is it calls me to look around the body of Christ that we get to be part of. It calls me to look at the local body at City Church. Man, I'm so grateful I get to be part of this church. I tell you this a lot, but I talked to other pastors literally just this week, and I was like, man, I have a better church than you. Um, and, and I don't mean like more spiritual or like I'm a better pastor. I mean like my people are so much easier on me than they are on other pastors. Thank you. Um, pastors have got it rough, uh, and I'm not one of them. I'm so grateful I get to be part of this church family. You guys are awesome. I love you from the bottom of my heart. Choosing to strive to love you even more deeply, because I know I got room to grow in that. But man, I'm so grateful for you guys. Communion calls us to look around and be grateful for the people God's placed in our life, for the people that, that we get to do this thing with. But it, I think even beyond the local church, it calls us to look around to, to his kingdom globally. Man, I got brothers and sisters who speak other languages. I got brothers and sisters who, who, who don't look like me. And that's a beautiful thing because we share Jesus together. And it calls us to recognize that there's something greater, that, that heaven is full of a multitude of every tribe, every language, every color, every nation, every people, that there's a bigger family of God out there that we get to be part of. What an honor. Communion calls us to look around. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Communion invites us to live up to that standard. To love each other. To be grateful for each other as we do this together. So I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in a couple verses of this hymn. And as they do, I'm going to invite you guys to come down. Grab a piece of the bread and, and a cup to partake. You can go uh, back to your seat. When you, I'll bring you up here in just a moment. Um, Come out on the left side of your row uh, and back down on the right side of your row just to make everything simple. We'll have the first couple rows come first and then everybody else. But grab the elements. We do have a gluten-free cracker on the side. Uh, if you need the gluten-free option, please partake in that. We don't want anybody to miss out on communion because of dietary restrictions. Um, and as you make your way back to your seat, just enter into worship in an attitude of examining your heart. You guys can 
Come partake of the elements. Worship team, lead us. Jesus on the same night he was betrayed knowing that that he's sitting there with his betrayer knowing that he's headed to the cross to bear the weight of the sins of the world to experience excruciating pain it says he took bread and he broke it and after he had given thanks he said this is my body which is broken for you what a statement He could have said, this is my body which is broken for sin. It certainly was. He could have said, this is my body which is broken for the world. It would have been absolutely true. He could have said, this is my body which is broken for the glory of my Father. And it was. But my Lord and my Savior, as he's about to die for my sins, looks at his closest friends in the world, and he says, my body is broken for you. This is my body that's broken for Eliza. This is my body that's broken for Chandler. This is my body that's broken for Drew. Insert your name in there. This is my body. It's been broken for you. He says, often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I'm not asking you to repay me for what I'm going to do. You never could. I'm I'm not asking you to to even thank me for what I'm about to do. He does say, I just want you to remember. Please don't forget the price that I've paid because I love you so greatly. Communion calls us to remember. Would you take the bread in your hand as we pray over it? Father God, we thank you for the body of Jesus. God, we thank you that Jesus did not withhold anything but he gave everything for us so that we could be restored to relationship with you so that we could now be the temple of your Holy Spirit that you could actually live in us and through us here on earth, that we could have relationship with the one who made us, that we could be forgiven of our sins. God, we thank you for the broken body of Jesus and we thank you that today you've united us as the body of Christ that we get to be the flesh and blood that represents Jesus right here on earth.
God, we thank you for that honor. We thank you that because he was broken, we could be made whole. And we worship you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. You can take the bread. It goes on in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, after they had finished supper, after they finished eating, Jesus took the cup. He says that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Covenant is this partnership between God and man. The old covenant required that we made sacrifices to cover over each and every one of our sins. It required this distance between us and God because of our sin. We weren't welcome in his presence, and so his presence dwelt behind a curtain separate from man. But Jesus says there's a new covenant. Because of his death, because of his resurrection, now we're forgiven of our sins. Now we don't have to make any more sacrifices because the ultimate sacrifice has been made. Now we don't have to be separate from God because we are now covered by the blood of Jesus and welcome in his presence. In fact, we're not just welcome in his presence. Now we're bearers of his presence. He's in us, living in us. He loves us so much. This is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So as we drink this today, we proclaim that Jesus died for us. We proclaim that God rose him back to life. And we proclaim that he's coming back for us. Communion is a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. It's a time to declare that our God is victorious. He triumphed over sin. He triumphed over death. And he brought us into his family. Would you pray with me over the cup? Father God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that this blood, that this cup symbolizes. God is just as powerful today as it ever was. We thank you that it's powerful enough to to cover every sin. God, to forgive every weakness. Father God, to to free us from every bondage, every habit, every addiction. God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. And we ask, God, that your blood would just be evident in our lives, that we would live lives that, that glorify you, live lives that reflect what you've already done for us. God, we celebrate today as we declare that Jesus died for us, that he rose again for us, and that he's coming again for us. Lord, we love you, and we worship you, and we celebrate you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. You can take the cup. Church, we're going to take just a a couple more moments to worship Jesus. I know... Everybody's ready to go eat, and we've got plans for the day and and all kinds of stuff. But would you just give Jesus three more minutes of your attention? Would you celebrate him like you believe what we just said really happened? That the God of the universe left heaven and came to earth to die for you. That his body was broken for you, and that he's alive again today, and his spirit is alive in you. Can we celebrate and sing and glorify him for just a few moments? Give him the glory that he's worthy of. Sing with this church.
God, we thank you this morning for the sacrifice you made. We thank you that the, the body of Christ was broken and his blood spilled for our sins, Father, so that you may be seen as, as holy and blameless, Father. Father, I pray that as we go throughout the rest of our week, that we'll be continually reminded of that. And Father, that we may be strong and bold enough to speak, Father, to serve others. And Father, that others would see Christ through us. We thank you again for everything you've done. We love you. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, City Church, so, so awesome getting to worship with you again today. Uh, make sure you join us next week as we wrap up First Peter in chapter 5. Don't forget we have prayer partners down here at the front if you need prayer over anything. But until then, we love you. We'll see you next week.